Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. We got Ob- Obama's back. Obama's back. He's been. He got back. pulled. Obama's been back a couple of them actually. I I overruled. I said I'm done with Obama. Bring on Canute, and then that got overruled. I know. Oh well. That's crazy. A lot of egos out there. Not you though. Low ego, Knut. Just a little passive aggressive now and then. <laughs> that email I got from you. Woo! It would be Woo! nice to know that you're actually in yeah. San Diego when we got a recording. So, you know, but that, you know, details, details, just a technical thing, nothing to worry about. I was like, might as well be at home. <laughs> you, cannot, <laughs> you can't escape. I maybe no deserve that, but I mean, Jesus, can a guy live? I'm 55. I was almost dead last year. <clears throat> Who cares where I am? It's a podcast. You know, that's a great point. Great point. So I accept your apology then. Um, was there an apology in there? I don't know. There might have been. All right. Well, then hand write one out. Even though I'm the <laughs> yeah. chair. I'll, I'll email it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's so nice here in San Diego. The fires have stopped. Well, 4% of California burned. That's incredible. It's a staggering number. Yeah, that's horrible. Yeah. Quite a year for Cali. We have a Cali guest, of course. The smart people are still... The ones that haven't left yet. Oh, they're leaving. But the ones that haven't left, we're trying to get them all on before they leave. And come out here and stay. Yeah. Salt Lake, Arizona, New Mexico, Wyoming, Montana. They're all leaving. Yep. And are we under 100 in Phoenix? Uh, Yes, we are. Mid-90s. Mid-90s. I'll be back tomorrow. But then again, I don't want to make promises because I don't get an email like that I just got. <laughs> I expecting you to walk in the door. It's like, where is he? <laughs> oh, man. Next thing you're going to say, you're going to check my underwear. Did you put on fresh undies today for the podcast? I can promise you one thing. That will never happen. You will never question that? No, I will my never turn. check and I will never question. All I'll right. Leave that we out have to Ellen. a good friend on the, on the program. See, I think I'm not going to give up too much information because it's top secret. You know, some people don't like to, uh, no one should care who it is. But. Because he's smart. Because he's smart. All the matters are the words. But uh, we, I've done no prep, as you can tell. Michael is a friend of mine, and he's been kind of in the shadows working on uh, a big growth company in the cybersecurity space. So hopefully he'll, he'll talk about that. But if not, he's just such a great investor. We, uh, he was at Cisco and Corp Dev for a long time, introduced me to a lot of great people and LPs and friends and has a huge brain around uh, the cloud, security, technology. It originally hails from Israel. All right. It's kind of like Norway, but with an economy. That's what we call Israel. <laughs> <laughs> I made that up oh, on the dude. fly. Yeah. That is not you're bad. You're supposed to say those things about Swedish people, not Norwegians, all right? Well, that's what you're supposed to say. But meanwhile, the damn Swedes, I may have to just... Go turncoat. They killed COVID over there, didn't they? How do you feel as a Norwegian about that? They're stealing all the thunder. I don't know if I feel very good about that now. I mean. They made a move. They pulled a move. They did. And so are they ripping on Norway? Like, because COVID's in Norway and not in Sweden? Or what, what do you think the real story is? 
I don't really know what the real story is. They do have an upper hand if this does truly work. They do. Going to be, the Swedish jokes about Norway are going to hold a, lot, hold a lot more truth than the Norwegian jokes about Sweden. You know how hard it will be to admit that they were actually right for once. Right. That's a, that's, that's a, so that's let's a traumatic not go there. thing. We're not going to go there. Do we have a guest today? Yes, we do. Okay. So uh, stop hogging. Let's get Michael on the phone. All right. I'll ring him up. Your Hebrew is getting better. Where are you holed up? I am held up in my backyard in Palo Alto, staying away from the kids. And how many are roaming around the house? Uh, three right now, all in Zoom sessions. It's funny, oh, Zoom became a, uh, a verb these days. You, you love the market, so I imagine you caught some Zoom. I haven't talked to you in a while. Imagine you were riding Zoom. I was a little bit. I can't say I wrote it completely out because this multiple expansion has gotten insane. But um, I benefited a little bit from Zoom, yes. A little piquito. So uh, are you allowed to talk about the new company or like give a background on where you're at today and, and background? I don't know. Yeah, I can talk a little right. bit. Um, so I, I'm, I'm part of, of Cohesity. Cohesity is a, a company that's... Um, is a modern data management company. So we provide primarily enterprises, but also the mid-market um, software to help manage their data and get more value out of it. Um, growth stage, really good investors, doing pretty well. Um, exciting stuff. So it's it's been a fun ride. Is that like, so the segment news, is that kind of in the same category, Twilio buying segment? Um, not really. It's more in... If you think about infrastructure software, infrastructure software has gone through a, a massive transformation over the last decade or so from kind of siloed approaches, um, very hardware heavy infrastructure to something that's more agile, much more uh, scalable across multiple clouds, you know, allow you to do get more value out of the infrastructure rather than solve for a point problem. So it's more in that sector. Um, but it's 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 about the new oil being data and how do you make more out of it? So, and so we'll talk about that because uh, you now were they an investment of Cisco or no? Yeah, they were actually. When I was at Cisco, I invested in Cohesity. So I, I been, I've known the company for a really long time, and then at some point, I decided to make the hop and and join the management team to help drive to go back to an operational role. So it's it's been fun. So you were operations, then Cisco, then operations. Is that the path? Yeah, I used to. I was operations, then VC. Um, oh, VC. Like do in Israel? Yeah. Uh, who were you a VC for in Israel, right? Yeah. I was at a fund called Genesis Partners, which was an, which was an early stage VC in Israel. Um, uh -huh. That's when I lived over there. And then you got recruited to Cisco? Yeah, then I got recruited to Cisco, moved over to the U.S., to the Bay Area, um, and I ran uh, Cisco's data uh, corporate development team initially for Cisco's mobile business, and then uh, for the last four years there for their data center practice, which is one of the larger businesses Cisco has. And in that capacity, Corp Dev at Cisco does M&A, but also does investments, joint ventures, partnerships, basically anything that touches equity. And so... As part of that, I led uh, Cisco's investment in Cohesity, which was about two and a half years back. And Cisco's like Series B or C generally? 
I think Cisco for Cohesi was C, if I recall correctly. Um, and then participated, obviously, after that. Cohesi raised Series E uh, earlier this year. So the flight path eventually IPO. You love gambling. You love the markets. I mean, we've been talking, and you're an LP, so you know you've you've been with me since the beginning, helping us think through ideas like Robinhood. Uh, you were all over the DraftKings craze early. We didn't really have a fund opportunity to be there. You just like the action. What is it? The Israeli thing, or is it just you're wired differently? Were you a geek right out of the uh, womb? What What's the background there? Well, um, I don't I don't classify myself as a geek. Um, I'm I'm around too many of those to call myself one. But um, you know, I think it's a mix. DraftKings is actually really interesting because I've been a sports fanatic since I was a kid. I mean, I got it from my dad, and it's funny now my son is one too. And I'm also really, I get really excited by technology and I'm an early adopter of everything and anything. And so when you mix sports technology and the like for action, you know, DraftKings is smack in the middle of that. And, you know, in an environment that's so highly regulated, being gambling and with the amount of spend in the U.S. on sports, you know, DraftKings found this niche. I remember talking to you a few years back and saying, you know, FanDuel, DraftKings, they're all going to be, you know, north of a billion dollar companies uh, because that's just a massive market with such massive demand. So um, it's been exciting to watch them. And do you still, so you and your son will have a little pool and, and, uh, and gamble a little bit? Yeah. I, I mean, for me, it makes sports more fun. So it's not about the money. It's about the excitement. Um, and I, absolutely. How old is the little guy now? He's seven, and he touches every sport uh, known to mankind. He's seven. Um, He's got a little bit of a – he likes parlays. Hi, I'm seven. I like girls and parlays. <laughs> With the amount of information today available to kids, when I need to make a decision on, you know, who to take or, you know, who's got the edge – I, get, I go to him. He's got more information than, than the internet. I mean, he's, he's got so many stats buried in his little head that he oftentimes, <laughs> he'll make the right calls. So he's getting better my, than I am. <laughs> my son lies in bed like Caesar eating grapes and has like seven screens. His, 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 his bed must be six, 700 degrees by noon. There's like 11 computers going, headphones, candy, uh, he's got lines on the wall, Drin. He's and he's not even into sports, and it's just because of, because he can. So if you're into sports, yeah. this is like the perfect moment. I know we're trying to keep him limited to a two screen rule. He can't have two screens operating at the same time. So, but I don't I don't think that will last for a really long time. He's a little younger than yours. So, <laughs> 2020 problems. So at, at um, Cisco, what was the biggest deal that you worked on? Um. I worked on, on many. I, I think the last one I worked on, which was large, was Duo, Duo Security. Um, I was not leading the security practice by any means, but that was such a complex deal that they've, they've needed some uh, air cover. Um, mm -hmm. So that was the last major multi-billion dollar deal that, that I worked on. And what was the one that got away? Is there one that like got away? That you're like, oh. Um, I don't think from an M&A perspective, I, I can't say there's one that got away. As an investor, I have many that got away. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the list is too long. Um, but that's the nature of, of investing. You don't have to get them all right. Um, you, have, you know, you're going to miss quite a few. You just got to get a couple right. And, and that's, that's the needle movers for you as an investor. So 
I can't I say mean, Matt, Cisco has the privilege of having so much capital. And as long as the, the valuation makes sense and there's a good case for why to acquire, the ability to execute and deliver there is pretty astounding. So it was a great school to learn for sure. I mean, I used to hear the stories from you. I mean, it's just like the the machine that it was. I don't think people, you know, it's fun, like as an investor, you know, stock twits and everybody's fin twit is talking about this, but they don't really understand the machine that is the corp dev of some of these NASDAQ, you know, top 20 companies. Yeah. And, and Cisco has been at the forefront of that primarily because it's done it for so long and it's so systematic that it's funny if I look at kind of the the team that was at Cisco Corp Dev when I joined and where they are today, I mean, they're spread across the entire infrastructure sector leading the different Corp Dev functions there. There's kind of a, a Cisco mafia now almost that's spread across different functions because it is so methodical. It's so thought through. And it's not because it's necessarily the, the, the smartest people. It's just that there's years of you know, flesh wounds on what has been done wrong. And as a result, there's a lot of what's been done right. Um, so it's been a great school. And I, I was very fortunate to to spend six years there. When was the last time you were back in Israel? Um, November. So a year ago. And then uh, I can say it's really hard because a lot of my family and my wife's family is, is based there and we're unable to go there, uh, partly because of COVID, but also because Israel has pretty massive restrictions on people coming from abroad um, in, because of COVID. So uh, it's, we're, we're doing a lot of Zooms, but um, there's no plans in the immediate future to travel there just because of the, the pandemic. And, you know, yeah, I was talking to Yoni and a group of them are over in Greece. Like Israel's like seems to be faring worse at managing this than most. Yeah, well, Israel made the, the cardinal mistake of opening up early without the... Um, without the crowd really accepting what are the limitations that make sense in terms of distancing, masks, et cetera. And they, I mean, they open up schools and the, the, you know, Israel had it managed pretty well. And then when they opened it up, they got that second wave that was just brutal. And so now um, they, they're really suffering from that perspective and, and they don't really have the culture of abiding to, norms and standards and requirements that is in in some other cultures and so just keeping things managed and you know leadership there is pretty poor as well and so that that mix is is pretty brutal they're used to sacrifice but maybe not following certain type of rules yeah that's why the startup ecosystem there is so strong because people break everything on the way and and that's you know one of the key uh, things for, for entrepreneurs is to be daring and to not accept reality for what it is to go for something bigger. And so it works in some sectors. It does not work well with COVID for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what we're learning, right? It's not how smart you are. It's, there's definitely some practices that just have to be followed. The, yeah. um, the data as oil. So what, so, so can we layer that back a little bit? Because, you know, it's the one thing, first of all, I was never a a commodities guy and not an oil person. So when people say data is oil at a high level, I go, well, this will be easier than oil was because it's scalable and etc. But there is a lot to that. And it's really over my pay grade. So at the simplest levels, what are we seeing? And where are the biggest opportunities? Because you like to invest in stocks too. Like, what does that mean data is oil to you? Yeah, so I'll give you an analogy that that is closer to home, right? So if you think about hedge funds, in our, or many hedge funds, right? They try to find sources of data 
in order to come up with better conclusions than most, right? Um, and how do you get to the best conclusions? You try to aggregate as much data as possible in order to have the most information to come out with those best outcomes. Now, when you think about the enterprise, where is the enterprise data? The enterprise data today is in all these legacy silos um, that don't really span across. And you know, the, the cloud in some cases solves that, but when you look at where this data actually exists for large enterprises, and think kind of old school, super large, you know, Fortune 100 companies, a lot of it is within their data centers, but it's split into all these silos. And there's this magic that you can bring if you can put all that data in one place and then try to use it for analytics use cases, for security use cases, for compliance use cases, for whatever outcome you're looking for. And that's just not feasible today. So if you're a cloud-first company, you were born in the last 10 years, you started on AWS or Azure and all your data is there, life is a little simpler. But if you're you know, one of the large financial institutions, you've been around for 100 years, your data is spread all over the place. It doesn't talk to each other. There's no ability to get any value out of it other than for the specific use case it was designed to be. And that's just a waste of resource. And so enterprises go through hoops to try to figure out how to get that value. And, you know, at Cohesity, we're at the forefront of that, of, of how to get value out of all that data. So enterprises pay companies like Cohesity to work with, so tell me just at the highest level how, how that works. Uh, give me an example of a customer, for example, and, and, and what it does, the product. Yeah, so the product, it, it has, so if you think about it as a platform that aggregates all the data underneath it, Mm -hmm. You still have to find a use case in order to displace something that exists in the infrastructure today. Because when you think about a CIO today, one of their biggest challenges is this proliferation of vendors that they have to deal with. The last thing they want is another vendor. Correct. So Cohesity started through the data protection world, what used to be called backup. Every enterprise out there backs up their data. And what they have is they have a disparate set of infrastructure for backup. So Cohesity came in and said, well, we can use backup. It's actually a great source of providing data because you back up mm. almost everything. We'll build the world's best backup solution. And ah. that will stream the data onto our platform. Now, once the data is there, you can now use that data for an abundance of use cases that displace other vendors for those given use cases. And so we're kind of, we have an entry point which is backup because everybody needs a good backup. But then all these other use cases are driving value out of that same set of data and frankly displacing vendors one after the other because you no longer need a vendor per use case. And in many cases in the enterprise, that could be five or six vendors for a given use case. So interesting. So the the wedge in was just the old school, we'll just do the we'll just do the most basic thing back up all your data yeah. in the cloud or somewhere. That's right. And backup is, it's funny because backup is a space that until the past, you know, four or five years wasn't innovated on in probably a decade because it's, it was so straightforward. Um, and so when you bring this web scale architecture to the world of backup, then backup becomes a capability as part of a platform rather than the end itself. Um, and it's interesting, this concept of uh, platforms, we talked about it a lot you know, in, in cybersecurity, you see the same thing. Everybody's going after a platform. 
Um, in, in fact, across all of infrastructure software, the story is who can be the platform that will aggregate multiple use cases because those are the, the technology vendors that really get the attention of the enterprise. And, and that's where the prize is. That's where you mm-hmm. see these massive valuations rise. And, and we, we see it in public markets. The companies that have scaled are the companies that have built platforms. And the leader in cybersecurity would be CrowdStrike? Or is it like, well, who do you think? Because we talk about this all the time from it's, Palo Alto <laughs> Networks to it switches, right? Like it's not it's not easy to hold on to the crown. It was Checkpoint forever. But. Who is it today? I think cybersecurity, I'm not a cybersecurity expert, but cybersecurity okay. is fascinating to me. And it, it all starts with like, if, if you step back and you look at, if you're a CIO today or a CISO, you have the world's most difficult life. Because when you think about the Uber themes, and I'll get to like the, the cybersecurity vendors, but if you look at the absolute themes, right, what does their life look like? Well, first, Security is a huge issue. It's a board, it's a board of directors conversation today because mm-hmm. of the number of attacks and the exposure they've gotten. The complexity in their infrastructure has grown exponentially. One, because their data is no longer in their data center. It's now in multiple clouds. It's not being managed centrally by them because you have these, these developers that are doing things either rogue or managed, but in different places using different technologies. So they have complexity in workload. Their surface area for attack thus becomes that much bigger. And then every solution or every problem that they have, there's five vendors going to solve it in five different ways. And so if you think about one word, and then there's COVID, by the way, with uh-huh. OPEX pressure and CAPEX pressure and desire to be more efficient and inability to spend. And so... If you think about one word that is music to the ears of a CISO or CIO, it's simplicity. And if you mm-hmm. think about simplicity, how do you make your life simple? Well, one way is to aggregate multiple issues to one platform. And so there's this battle for platform insecurity. And when you think about that, it's actually really interesting because you got these old school vendors and, and Palo Alto will excuse me for calling them old school, but vendors that we've seen for quite a while now, Cisco, Palo Alto, Symantec, right? They all have platforms where they started from a given use case, right? Palo Alto started with firewall and then they expanded to more and more use cases. Then you have these like new children on the block, which are not really new, like a Zscaler or a CrowdStrike. And it's funny, if you read the CrowdStrike IP up, S1, sorry. It's platform, platform, platform. Here's the first use case. And here's the seven other use cases that we're going to upsell. And here's what is our upsell capability and how many customers are using more than one use case. It's this whole pitch of platform. Because platforms where you get multiple expansion, you prove a TAM expansion, the ability to address a bigger market, and you get a bigger multiple. And then the really interesting third theme is you get these non-security players that are tangential to security, that are realizing security is becoming a board conversation and are trying to expand into security. So a really good one is VMware buying Carbon Black for Endpoint, right? That VMware was not thought of as a security company. Um, huh. And they've transitioned. So you get these external forces, Akamai with DDoS, right? Um these non-security vendors trying to push in, leveraging the platform that they already have for a non-security market to expand into security. So to me, it's fascinating who's going to win out because the existing 
And these new players coming from outside have scale and have account control. But then the new, the new children, you know, Zscaler, CrowdStrike, they have a modern architecture and are truly disruptive. And so if I'm a CISO, I'm praying for the days these consolidate. Um, huh. And we've seen a ton of M&A in this space. And there's, you know, thousands of startups offering point solutions. I just can't see an enterprise continuing to manage so many vendors at one time. And so there has to be consolidation. I've been talking to you about it for a few years. We've seen a lot of it happening, but I think there's a lot more to come. Because look at it, like the risk of making the wrong decision is so high. Yeah. I mean, the amount you have to invest to just stay current. Like you, you do this because you love it. Like you have a regular job, uh, but you're, you just have always been fascinated by this. And I'm derivatively fascinated because I, I only understand 10%. You repeat it to me 10 times and I'll get 30%. But so as, a, as an investor, I've always said to people here in my audience, QQQ over SPY, which is just quite simply own the NASDAQ 100, you know, and, and it's not perfect, but at least you're going to get rid of, you know, civilian based companies. In a world where you understand tech a little further, what do you do to make sure you have cyber and data? Do you do the same thing with ETFs or will you try and pick a few stocks or is there an ETF or is there something that just makes you feel better about having the right exposure to data and security? Yeah, so that, that's a really interesting question. So one, I think owning QQQ is a great strategy. Now we can talk about it's, the it's dynamics. For 95% of people, everybody wants to get famous, including me. I like fashion. I call it fashionology. I'm 80 to 80. But in the end, 90% of what most people could do is just the simplicity of QQQ over SPY. They'll take the higher volatility, but it's you know market cap weighted to the biggest tech companies in healthcare. Okay, so what will you do beyond that? Because I don't think you do QQQ, yeah, so, do you? Well, I, I do QQQ, not a lot. Um and, you know, we can talk about QQQ because I think there's, there's a lot of dynamics today because of COVID that are really impacting QQQ. But personally, I take a portion of my assets and I invest them in companies that I have a lot of conviction about long term. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a little bit like you're 880. I don't know if I'm thinking 60 years ahead, but certainly mm -hmm. with a 10 year lens. Um in sectors that I feel I understand a little bit. So, you know, I invested in a company like ServiceNow a long time ago. Uh, we talked a lot, you and I, about Shopify, right? Shopify. Mm -hmm. I think we've had numerous conversations about Amazon when it was worth, yes. I think, $200 billion. And, and I think I told you, like, AWS it should be worth 5x what Amazon's worth, right? Yeah. AWS alone. We had lunch in 2015 at Palo Alto, and you just walked me through why AWS was worth more than the whole and I don't talk about Amazon a lot because why? Like, I'll just sell it for some, like Amazon's the one stock that's in my portfolio, not number one, not number 10, always in between, you know, two and nine where I just don't sell and it's just creeped up and nothing scares me about the company because it's just a beast. Like that AWS machine, is it getting to the point where it's silly in valuation or it's impossible to, to value or the AWS side or where, you know, five years later now that we're talking about it again, like what's the conviction level about that? So I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm less of a multiples guy. I'm, I'm not nearly sophisticated enough to do that. I like to think about themes and the theme I, I, I think about when I think about Amazon is um, the transition of enterprises to the clouds. And I think we're at the infancy. So you can say, you can have conviction on AWS if you'd like. If you don't have conviction on AWS, 
just by Amazon and Microsoft and a couple of the Chinese cloud vendors and hedge, right? And then you're buying the theme. Now, you don't need an ETF for that. There aren't that many cloud companies out there. Um, and which Chinese? And, and then you, which Chinese? Are you talking Tencent Baba or so is there like, two? More? Yeah, like Tencent Baba. Don't, don't, don't go crazy. Buy the big companies. Yeah. If you look, I think we talked about this in 2015 or whenever we talked about, you know, how much of Amazon's worth is AWS. And you can have that same conversation about Microsoft today in Azure. I think it's a very meaningful portion. So you're actually not taking that much exposure to the non-cloud business by buying mm-hmm. that asset. In my personal portfolio, not that this is a recommendation, the no. cloud players have been number one by far for the last five years. Yes, I've they have for you them. and Jeff Richards, but it's not, it, you know, Shopify is a cloud company or is that e-commerce company in your brain? So I, I put them in a different category. So there's companies that leverage the cloud or leverage this delivery model. And there's companies that provide the infrastructure and some of the services in the cloud. So I think, you know, Amazon, Microsoft were thinking about the clouds themselves. To me, Shopify was a desired alternative for e-commerce. And it was, it was I mean, their execution has been phenomenal. And I remember uh, your friend, Vili, uh, was talking about them forever. Forever. And you know, it was a complete no-brainer move. Now, did I think they will do 10x in one and a half years or whatever? No. Um, no, I don't think anybody did. But it was obvious that there was a lot of great execution. And I think that's, that's that platform story that's really hard to figure out in security, but has been a lot easier to figure out in other markets. You see a market that's going through fundamentally delivery model change. You know, ServiceNow with IDSM is a great example. They, they took an existing market and basically recreated it. And when that's a $50 billion, $100 billion market, you're going to get outsized returns for sure. You look at the snowflake craze that happened you know, over the past month. What is that right. about? That's about data lakes being a massive market and people betting that snowflake is a disruptor. Um, What's data lakes mean, like just to me? Like how would you explain it to me? I, I think we talk about data as the new oil. That, that's basically right. it. It's about putting okay. data in one place to be able to leverage. Okay. Got it. So Cohesity looks at it like lakes too. Yeah. So we are not just about putting the data together. We are about the use cases on top. Snowflake is more of a, a cloud first, put the data in one place for the enterprise to be able to leverage. So okay. they're more about organizing it. We're more about unstructured data and leveraging it. And where does security fit into that? Because like if I'm, when you say, oh, I'm going to back up your data, the first thing I think about is security. Like now you got to convince the company that you're not only going to produce value on what you back up for them on top of it, you're going to also protect what you backed up for them. Absolutely. So first of all, you know, uh, a backup is a form of remediation, right? It's an insurance policy. So you can certainly think about it from a security lens. Um, But then once you have the data, and I think that's, that's the magic. And, and by the way, that's in many ways the cloud player strategy as well. Once you have the data, many of the use cases you can drive on top of that data is security use cases. I even think to my old school Cisco days, right? Cisco has a ton of networking data. And so when you think about network security, who's better to resolve that than the vendor that has access to the data and can manage it in the right way? So data is, is different things to different people. And there's going to be many data companies spanning different elements, but security is absolutely paramount to it. And that, you know, that's part of this theme of, of somebody like a VMware that has a ton of data around compute 
and around how applications are being used for them to move into the security space makes a lot of sense because they can then run security capabilities on top of that. And so how do you, someone in Palo Alto, you've seen San Francisco kind of melt down slowly and then all of a sudden, uh, Midtown Manhattan, how has it affected large scale enterprise sales? Like, well, obviously COVID accelerated the crowd, yada, yada, yada. I mean, it became obvious to me in May, in March, when I started this podcast, it wasn't like I thought the NASDAQ could get back to all time highs. I'm not, uh, all, you know, my thesis was, okay, too late to sell people not the end of the world, but I never saw this. When did you see that this was an acceleration and a major moment for the cloud? When did you see that? And your, your customers still got to be wary, or are they just saying, fuck it, pin my ears back, just get your guys over here and upgrade me? Yeah, so I think one, you know, there needs to be like a mental decoupling of the state of the technology business and the state of the NASDAQ. Because I think one of the really interesting phenomena that happened in the NASDAQ and this V, this absurd V-shape recovery from a stock perspective is that there's many sectors that got meaningfully hit by COVID, right? Travel is the most obvious one. And when you think about large-scale institutional investors that had dollars there, they had to reallocate them because they, the, the COVID presented too much of a risk. Well, what's your safe haven? Where's the place where you see consistent growth and fairly low risk? And it's absurd, but technology has become this low risk space where you see outsized returns. So you saw tremendous flow of capital from COVID impact sectors to technology, which created multiple expansion that isn't really foundational on performance. It's just a, a shift of funds. Now, at the same time, you have technology companies executing really, really well. And what are some of the drivers that can drive faster adoption of technology, well, one of them is let's send all the employees to work from home. Well, there's now going to be need for more infrastructure, more support, uh, higher simplicity. Um, and that, that, just, that doesn't just go to Zoom. Think about developing from remotely. Think about the amount of technology innovation. And so I think COVID did make enterprises somewhat cautious about spending but technology has always been an area where they have to keep spending to innovate and to become more efficient. In many cases, technology actually saves you money rather than forces you to spend more money. And then you have things like security where it becomes, um, it becomes something that, that, that impacts your livelihood as an enterprise. And so you have to spend on security. So we haven't seen as meaningful a reduction in, in technology spend as you, you would have intuitively thought. And then couple that with all the transitions happening from legacy players to more modern players. Listen, there's a lot of legacy technology players that have been heavily impacted by COVID. But the new modern guys, they're, get, they're riding all the ways right now. You know, money shifting to the NASDAQ, um, uh, uh, CIOs and CISOs looking to find simpler, more modern solutions, remote workforce. All these are themes that are fueling this growth. And so, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic. I'm just a little cautious because some of that dollar shift, that capital shift that moved into technology, it may at some point balance itself out a little bit. And then you may see a little bit of a draw. So I would balance my QQQ strategy with pointed solutions that I know or I have a strong conviction that are going to grow over the next 10 years. And what about... Early stage, because you're an investor in our fund. You, I don't even remember why you even found us. 
is it through Twitter or who introduced us? Do you remember? Yeah, I we think, ended up right I think away, we and met I'm not through smart, Twitter. So. <laughs> I think we met through Twitter, and then I think I you invited me as a result to one of your events in San Diego, and the rest is history. So you just got along with everybody. Like first, like you, you got you met uh, what's his name from DraftKings. Jordan on the product side. Yeah, Jordan you just Mandel. hit it off with He's your own awesome. group. Yeah, it's a weird group, right? Like my group is like not geeky, but in the end, it's like a pretty geeky group. Yeah, I think it's just people that get really passionate about technology and you stick them in Coronado for a couple of days and, you know, everybody has a good time because we have shared common interests. I remember that first time I went home, I became like a, like a product um, feedback provider for DraftKings. Jordan would send me like the newest skin. I'd be like, what's your feedback? I'm like, well, I want live results. You know, I became their super user. So it's, you know, I, I found a lot of friends that way. It's a, it's a really special group. And I've really yeah, enjoyed being You were with me early playing with Robin Hood and you just had such great feedback for them too. Uh, yeah, I remember I, that. And what excites you now in the, in the early stage days? Like what, what type of companies are people not paying attention to that is interesting? Well, I think there's, there's a lot of themes around change and you know I'm, I'm much i'm much less of a consumer guy even though i get i enjoy things like robin and DraftKings and the like I, I feel much more comfortable in um in the enterprise world and you know the themes the themes that i like to think about are changes in technology that are going to completely displace large existing markets so one example is how you run compute today well today or maybe not today, but five years ago, was primarily a virtualized world. And and then containers came about and microservices and everything in the infrastructure stack now needs to shift to support that. So there's, there's been a bunch of interesting companies in those spaces. Um, I'll tell you this, though, as I have grew, grew a little older, um, to me, early stage is much less about the space and it's much less about the product. It's much more about the people. And I know it's completely cliche, but, you know, I've been fortunate to work for uh, Moed Aron, who's our, our founder and CEO, and he's a phenomenal entrepreneur. And when you're around somebody like that for days on end, you realize why there's success. Yeah. This, you know, this passion and just this incredible IQ that's exponentially higher than all of ours. And this drive to be customer obsessed and to make something that drives value for our customers. Um, it's been phenomenal to watch. And I think if you can find those types of people, uh, no matter where they came from, no matter, they will bring in strong teams around them and they will find paths to success. And, and to me, that is the secret sauce. Human capital is the secret sauce to, to, to sound early stage investments. Yeah, amen. Human capital, uh, you know, social leverage was all a play on the network and the humans, you know, the connecting people and going fast. And, you know, the one thing I got right was that, like, it is the human. Like, I'm not a tech person, but the humans still are an important part of the tech. Because, like, listen, you went dark. You've been missing. And for good reason. You're running a huge late stage uh, private company at the exec level. Do you miss our chats? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every time you have an event, um, I'm, I block it off in my calendar. And then for some reason, I can't make it. And so it's been probably, you know, a year and a half or two years since I've been able to make it. But to me, this, you know, the, the great privilege that you have is proximity to innovation and proximity to the brilliant minds that make it happen. 
And if you love disruption and you love technology, that's always where you want to be. Um, now, there's tremendous benefits to being in a growth stage company and seeing, you know, us change the world. That That's a different type of adrenaline. But that human connection and seeing something so early and be seeming so disruptive and then seeing it happen, it's, it's such a exciting experience. I mean, again, I remember Robinhood when people were saying, trades for no cost like how does that model work and but you and, and i got it we were laughing at everybody like, yeah. uh, luckily i had and, you to and, help and, me and, with my conviction but uh. and it was a super simple app i mean i think it had like two functionalities right like there's nothing yeah. in there but it was so intuitive so easy to use that you realized that was magic you know that was that was the gold mine that you were looking for and if you have that and you have entrepreneurs that are passionate about scaling it and know how to execute and have that drive, then then those are the bets you want to be making. And I've seen in your funds, you do it time and time again. It's been it's been great to watch. So so data is the new oil. I think it sounds like you'll go back to VC at some point and do early stage. That's where your passion is. Your kids are still young. You'll be able to look over their shoulders. You'd be nuts not to go back to actually no, not nuts because you've never done early. You'll be you'd be you, I bet you go back to early stage. So we'll have to keep a seat warm for fund five and six for, but enterprise like Gary, my partner, and you know, Gary, I mean, enterprise is still early is what you're saying too. I'll say this, you know, and, and I'm biased because I've been in the enterprise world for so long, but I, I like to talk about this in terms of batting average in, in consumer, your batting average is going to be relatively lower, but when you hit a home run, it's going to go out of the park. And we've seen that time and time again. The batting average for enterprise is meaningfully higher. Um, so if you got a good entrepreneurs and you got a true market that needs disruption, your likelihood to hit a home run is meaningfully higher. Now it might not go out of the park, but you know, look at Snowflake. I mean, that's out of the park, and there's there's many examples like that. That's just the most current one. Look at CrowdStrike. You mentioned CrowdStrike. Look at CrowdStrike. You know, there's there's a lot of great examples in that world. Um, so to me, enterprise is, you know, I don't want to call it a gamble, but a lower risk move in a world where risk is still incredibly high uh, and it's you can get true venture returns. And, and so I'm much more bullish on enterprise. But again, I, I have a little bit of a biased view because that's the world I've been living in. Yeah, and and I'll ask you this, like, because we all the markets give nothing but made us look smart. Is there a company that surprises you that people are missing or screwed up for a couple quarters that you own that you're like, oh, yeah, they'll play catch up that that you're not scared about, but like has screwed up and has an opportunity still, and no one's talking about it. Well, I you know that that would have been a great question to ask like four months ago when I sold nothing and the market was dipping, and I remember my my dad calling me and saying, "You know, aren't you worried?" And you know, at the time, I remember I bought more Disney, which is not a technology company. Oh well, I guess now it is, but it's a lot of its revenue base is not technology based. And um, and my dad's like, "Well, all the parks are closed," and and I said, "No, it's a, it's a long term bet. It makes complete sense." But I think. There's a lot of underappreciated assets in technology that would still have a really meaningful runway and they, they, they don't get as much of the limelight because of the, the snowflakes and the crowd strikes. Um, and, um, 
you know, one of our good friends actually tweeted yesterday about ServiceNow. I think that's a great example of a company that still has a really long runway despite its high valuation okay. uh, that I'm super bullish about. Um, and I'm also really bullish about security. Uh, I think there's a lot more consolidation to come there, and that that's tremendous upside opportunities. And if, if the stock market dropped 20%, 30% over the next month, and everybody, everything's down equal, what's the one stock that you're like, oh, you wouldn't have to worry, it's the one stock you would buy if everything opened up down 30% tomorrow? I, you, you can never go wrong with buying Amazon and Microsoft. And I know it sounds really cliche, but they're going to give you, I feel the transition to the cloud is its in infancy. And I know they're both, you know, trillion dollar companies, but I think they have, they both have tremendous more potential. And frankly, I don't see anybody disrupting them at massive scale. And so they, it's their market. Um, and that market should continue to grow. Great answer. What? Keep it simple. Here's the thing that interests me. Why is I have had a million smart people on this show? Why is nobody's ever data, security, consumer, cloud? No one says Google. Why is a company that great never mentioned? We haven't mentioned it once in this show. Why do they miss, or not that they miss, but why are they not in? I know they're part of Fang, but why is nobody? And the stock is performing like it should, like no one cares. But what what are they? What is everybody worried about? And what what is there something there that we're missing? Yeah, I, I don't think so. By the way, I own Google too. I'll, I'll tell you what I think at Google scale, which is a scale very few companies have. And um, and by the way, I'm by no means a Google expert, but too much of their business model is still on their foundational, right, search advertising. And there really isn't a market that I can think of where, I mean, they've made momentum is in multiple areas, but nothing at that scale. And it was, it's really interesting because I remember that lunch conversation about Amazon. And when everybody talked Amazon valuation at the time, everybody talked e-commerce. And I remember we talked and I said, e-commerce, I know it's huge from a revenue perspective, but that's the noise in the valuation. The true valuation of that, they've managed to build another business that is at the scale that Good drives point. meaningful return for their valuation. Um, and I don't think Google has managed to do that. At the end of the day, when you look at their financials, most, most of the dollars are still coming from the same place they did five years ago. And, and it's a great business to be in and it's driving great returns. But there's no new engine that I can think of. And GCP was an attempt. Um, I, I don't think they've gotten there yet, and maybe they will. Um, but but at that, that needs massive scale. It, it's hard to add the revenue engine to a company of that size. So as stupid as the market is, it's not it relatively not stupid, meaning until Google does what Amazon did or what Microsoft did with Azure and Teams and what uh, Apple's done in hardware and chips and consumer, that's what Google you know, a conglomerate for sure and part of your portfolio mind, but it's not going to be talked about in first wave because it is being attacked on all angles at its one giant business. Okay, I'm going to let you go. You're busy. Uh, I just podcast and uh, write checks. So um, I, hope you, I hope you had fun. I know like it wasn't Yeah, planned. it's always fun chatting with you. And uh, I really, I'm really glad that Cohesity is doing well. It doesn't, you're not like, it's not like a company in the press. Is it one of those like snowflake that'll just like, when, when people start talking about it, people will start talking about it. And that's the way enterprise and data work. 
I, I don't think it's on purpose. I think, you know, if you took Snowflake out of the IPO context, they weren't talked about much either. I think that space to the average reader, unless you're an infrastructure buff um, or software, you know, a, a infrastructure software buff, it's not really that exciting. It's, there's a lot of tech there that's really hard to understand. Um, so I think typically those companies don't get as much coverage until they go, they start getting close to public eye and, and that's when it gets more, more and more coverage. Um, so I think okay. it's just the nature of the market we're in. I forgot one last question. So you're still in Palo Alto. People are leaving San Francisco. Is there, is that a problem for tech? Is that a good thing for tech or are people underestimating how powerful Silicon Valley is still? Uh, that, that's a loaded question. I'll, I'll, I'll give you my personal view. First, I see a lot of people leaving. And uh, they're leaving for various reasons. I think COVID was a catalyst to make people realize that they can work remotely. Um, I personally don't believe in the long-term remote workforce theory. Uh, I think you can do some things remote, but there's value to human contact that you cannot achieve through Zoom. Um, And so to me, it's always going to be some sort of hybrid. The ecosystem that exists in Silicon Valley is incredibly difficult to match anywhere else. And it's been tried. And and I came from a country that's been one of the closest to mimic it. But the investor ecosystem here, you have the customers here, you have the partners here, you have the consultants here. It's really different. It's not just about building startups. It's about building ecosystems. And that's really hard to mimic. So I think at the end of the day, you may see engineering spread out a little more, but the business functions, I think a lot of them remain in the Bay Area and a lot of the leadership roles remain in the Bay Area. Not for everybody. Uh, there's going to be more pockets growing. We've seen that in New York and in Israel and in, in London and, and more pockets. But the strength of Silicon Valley should not be underestimated. And it, it's not about any one sector or any one set of people. It's about an ecosystem that's been successful for many, many years. All right, that's a fair answer. And where, when do will we start hearing about Cohesity as an IPO? Do you think it's next year or the year after? Uh, you're going to need to answer that question, not me. But um, I think we've been <laughs> we've been doing trem- tremendously well. Don't get me in trouble with 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 our people. But um, there's only my dorks listen. Your people don't <laughs> give me the time of day. You're a crossover, so we're okay. All right, so Cohesity, thanks for taking the time, my man. I'm glad uh, you're involved with us and getting checks once in a while. And uh, I appreciate all the insights. And we got a lot to talk about in Singapore, our man Shiva too. So a lot of good stuff going on in the network. That's right. He's the ServiceNow tip. So uh, if you have ServiceNow questions, go to Shiv. You're right. He And he loves stocks. Okay, my man, we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks for having me on, Howard. Okay, buddy. Bye. Canute. That was different, huh? Amazing. Just that absolutely amazing? amazing. Yeah. He's the coolest. Such a... I can see that he's a guy you get along with right away. Yeah. He loves really hanging nice. with us. It's fun to have someone deep tech, but like also can speak to uh, regular peeps all day. Exactly. All right. You panic with friends. There was no panic there. None at all. There was this restrained enthusiasm, I would call that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to try and make him nervous. Uh, he he uh, understands what he understands. The world needs what he's got. So uh, tune in twice a week. Go uh, Spotify or Apple or Google. Hit up Panic with Friends, Howard Linson. Um, I have a free blog, howardlinson.com. Talks about trends and markets. Uh, easy to find us. 
And uh, thanks for producing this, Canute. Thanks for StockTwits for uh, distributing and promoting. And um, we'll see everybody uh, soon.